Welcome to the Ample Side of the Willamette Valley podcast. Today we have a very special guest. He is our new director of our high school program, which is starting this fall. And his name is Austin Choate. Do I do I have the That's pronunciation right. correct? correct? Okay. And Austin is coming to us from, of all places, San Francisco. And we were just having a conversation about the differences between Newburgh and San Francisco, which you can imagine are quite uh, extreme. So welcome to the podcast, Austin. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to have you. Good to be here. So what I wanted to do is just introduce our audience to who Austin is, a little bit about him, and then also a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish with our high school. What I wanted to do is I, I wanted to first start with just uh, an introduction about you and your family. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your wife and your children and um, how settling in Newburgh has gone so far. Sure. Um, my wife, Jacqueline, and I have uh, three children. So we have uh, Sarah from Rose is the eldest. She just turned five in May. Sybil Anastasia turned three in June, and then Nicholas Alexander was born in January. You also are in the midst of finishing up your PhD at Cambridge. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm uh, finishing my PhD in theology at the Institute for Orthodox Christian Studies there in Cambridge, and I'm writing uh, essentially on, the first part is at least historical theology. So looking at St. John of Damascus and how he happens to use a particular term, uh, which had precedence in, in, or had a, a significance in earlier authors, but he really expands it in ways that uh, uh, other authors didn't. And so there's some real uh, intrigue in, in exploring that which other authors or other scholars haven't done. And then the second part is a constructive theological approach, which is to take that as the springboard for more creative reflection by seeing how he might incorporate thought from, particularly in, in my thesis, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, who's okay. an American philosopher. Okay. Wow. So you've got quite a bit going on uh, in your life with children, um, a new job, uh, setting up the high school, and the curriculum, which I understand is going to be a really exciting but challenging curriculum. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, and then how on earth do you balance all this stuff? Uh, sure. So start with the curriculum. Uh, it's actually not that we have favorites necessarily, but I, <laughs> if I were permitted to have uh, one of the pieces or one of the aspects of the curriculum that I think I would favor, uh, it's definitely this year's uh, because it's going to be uh, essentially ancient or classical to Reformation. Okay. And so that's really where the Christian tradition gets its start. Um, I mean, we're building on that from the classical traditions, so to speak, from uh the Old Testament, uh, but also um, the Greeks, so the Hellenic tradition, the Roman tradition, which you know sets the stage for Christianity to emerge and really work itself out over those those coming centuries. Um, you know, we're reading from a uh, broad range of literature as well, so it's not just history, but it's it's also the the rich literature. So everything from the Iliad and the Odyssey to Plato's. Uh, 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 analogy of the cave uh, to Beowulf, which will be my I think fifteenth time to read Beowulf. Oh my goodness! So this is one of my favorite texts. <laughs> wow! And Beowulf is not an easy book to read. Well, it's it's deceivingly uh, difficult. Is that for a long time it was passed off as being this kind of like 
not a scholarly text, let's say. It wasn't like the Iliad or the Odyssey. And it was really J.R.R. Tolkien who kind of brought it to scholarly prominence as, as something worthy of attention in that, in that arena, in that domain. And so uh, we recently actually exchanged the books uh, because we had ordered uh, the version by Seamus Heaney, um, which is a perfectly you know, uh, adequate translation. Um, but I had a preference for Tolkien and, and his translation, in part because these books will be given to the students and it has his wonderful commentary in addition. Oh, very so, good. So, you know, you can go through this as, again, as you can imagine, the first read is going to be different from the 15th. Yeah. And so when you go through it, you can really begin to appreciate the layers that are there. As you said, it's, it's not an easy text to read, but you don't appreciate that on the first read. You have to go through it and really pause. And as I've gone through it uh, a number of times, teaching it as well as just reading it for, for pleasure, you begin to kind of... Um, uh, participate in its in its kind of ethos, mm-hmm. so you begin to, begin to appreciate it at a whole new level. Well, it really sounds like the high school curriculum is very similar to a great books curriculum or an honors program. Is that sound about right? It's similar in some respects. So, in terms of the content, the books that we will read, the ideas that we want to entertain, those will be very similar. It's really the pedagogy. It's really the method that distinguishes Ambleside from a classical school or from a great book school. So in that in that respect, they have similarities and differences. Okay, maybe you could cover some of those similarities and differences for those listening. Um, a lot of people are familiar with classical education. Um, not a lot of people are familiar with the Ambleside or Charlotte Mason uh, method. Maybe you could quickly describe some of those key distinctions. Yeah, and I, I mean, I was one of those people who grew up uh, exposed to kind of classical texts and classical learning, uh, as was my wife. And we had done the Great Books program at UT Austin. So we thought we were all very well ensconced in this in this tradition and knew what it was like to, to approach this from a Christian perspective. But ju- it just so happened that we came to teach at an Ambleside school and were exposed to this. And so I've put a lot of thought and effort into thinking about what distinguished it uh, from, from my previous experience. Um, and one of the ways that I've, one of the metaphors that I like to use is to compare it to language. And uh, other people have, have come up with other metaphors to do it, but I, I think this way gets at some of the similarities and differences between it and classical education, which is that, okay, uh, so when we look at a language, when we're talking about English, for instance, we have two aspects to it. We have semantics, what we're trying to say, what we're meaning to say, the content there. And then we have the syntax, the grammar, the way in which we say it. So to me, what seems to me similar in the classical educational model or the the, the classical school model and the Ambleside model is the content. That is, we both want to communicate classical ideas. We both want to communicate the truths of the faith, for instance. That's why, you know, we talk about the the Nicene Creed or we talk about those sorts of things in, in both contexts. But the way in which we say them, you know, it's, you wouldn't communicate English using Mandarin grammar. It just wouldn't work. And so in the same way, I think classical education, um, at least as it's practiced in the West, the modern West in 2019, often borrows its syntax, its grammar, so to speak, from traditions which are actually very much opposed to the things that it wants to teach. They're inimical to it. So it's borrowing its grammar, as it were, from behaviorism, from models of education which just treat the child not as a person, but as essentially a depository of information. It's a kind of bank of information or computer. 
which is, again, completely opposed to the Christian notion of personhood. And so what Ambleside seeks to do is to uh, resolve the cognitive dissonance there. Um, okay, we want to teach these things. We want to teach the content that you want to teach, but we want to do it in a way which is respectful and observant of that content. So in other words, let's do it in a way that treats the child as a person, not just pay lip service to it. And that's not always something that's done, I think, um, on behalf of those classical educators who, who mean very well. They're doing what they know, um, but what they know is, is behaviorism. So they don't quite um, always grasp what they're doing is, is actually contrary to their project. Very interesting. Wow. Well, I am holding in my hands a copy of the book, Ourselves, by Charlotte Mason, a book which the students that you will have in your high school program have already read. Um, I am almost completely done with it. And I have to say, I am very impressed by this book. Charlotte Mason continues to surprise me. I wanted to read a quote uh, to you and to the listeners and get your response to it. Because I put in the margins, this is high school. Um, now, maybe not the high school that you're starting. Sure. The difficulty is, she. this is uh, a particular section where she's talking about self-ordering. Um, it's justice to ourselves is one of the headers. Uh, the difficulty is that many young people go down the broad road without knowing they are on it. They do not stop to think and look about them. They say, it does not matter, this little pleasure or the other, and they lost their sense of honor before they know it. Now, the reason I picked this passage out was because when we had lunch, you made a comment that really stuck to me where you were talking about the real need for otherness within the Christian community. And I think about my own high school experience, and when I read this in the broad road, I, th I went right back to my teenage years and thought, wow, this really describes my experience and the experience of a lot of my peers, that we didn't really know what was going on. And before we knew it, we were in trouble. Um, so juxtapose this to this um, high school that you're starting and this concept of otherness that you had mentioned in our talk. And maybe you could start with the otherness community and how it seems to be missing in our Christian life these days. Yeah, so I mean, this could be a whole, yeah, this sure. could be Joe yeah. Rogan experience, <laughs> yeah. three and a half hour topic right yeah, now. Totally. Um, so I, I, I think this uh, about that topic, I mean, there, there's so much that could be said. I mean, because what we look at when we look at the high school experience is not dissimilar to what we find in academia at, at all levels, but particularly higher education, which is this kind of splintering of the human person, this fragmentation that occurs and you see this in the disciplines is, you know, you have this isolation and siloing that occurs. Now, why is this an issue? Because I think especially from the Christian perspective, the integrity, the integralness of, of the person, you know, this is not, truth is not uh, uh, divided against itself. Truth is one, you know. So this idea of the unity of, of things needs to be kind of brought to the, brought to the floor. Now, what does this have to do with the, the broad path? I mean, trying to pick up all these strands here, but I, I would say what it's observing or what she's observing there is the integrity of the human person, which is not just this kind of free-floating free intellect. You know, education is, is merely appealing to, uh, you know, this speculative 
side of the human person, the, the use of, of your reason, the use of your mind. Um, it really speaks to the kind of um, aspect of, of the person which is embodied, habit formation, right? So what we know about uh, the human person from neuroscience and, and particularly the, the, the role and importance, uh, the magnitude of, of habit formation, particularly on the brain, and the way in which we engage in most of our uh, activities uh, from the standpoint of a habit. Um, these are not, as she would say in like part two when we're talking about the will, right? This is not something that we're deliberately kind of in control of in, in most instances. And so we can glide through this easy life. But what we end up finding in, in today's culture is that it's not such an easy life. It's, it's really actually ordered along the broad path towards, as the, the scriptural passage that she's taking that from, towards destruction. Mm -hmm. um, so this feeling of otherness is, I mean, it, it's a kind of, it's, it's a very vivid contrast, I think. As you look at the broader culture, which is, again, fragmented and, and uh, decentralized and all these other sorts of things, which kind of treats education as this acquisition of or downloading of information, Whereas we're viewing it in this uh, essentially Christian context where we see the integrity of the human person as body, mind, and spirit, uh, in which case habit formation is very important, um, the inculcation of the virtues. Because it's, it's, again, it's not one day that you wake up and are courageous. It's not one day that you wake up and are wise or by this instantaneous, uh, you know, uh, ascent that you just, oh, I want to be that, and you are so. You know, it's, it's a kind of gradual process. We grow in a very organic way uh, into that. And so the otherness comes from not just a kind of radical rejection of those uh, destructive models, but also a radical affirmation of what it is that we're called to and what it is that we profess to believe as Christians. Hmm. Yeah, I was really struck by her notion of duty. Mm -hmm. and responsibility and how she talked about the sort of parable of Mansoul as the human being is not a bunch of parts, but yet uh, has a bunch of powers. Mm -hmm. And that you first have to understand what all those powers are, what they are capable for both good and for bad, so that you can eventually, this is what I thought was so fascinating, get outside of yourself and then really will to do something great, which is, of course, uh, to serve God in a particular capacity. Well, you don't want to just go, I mean, she's the beneficiary of a culture which still has uh, these vestiges of, of Christianity that are very public, whereas in our t day and time, it's become very privatized. I mean, those processes had already begun in her day, but they're even more pronounced in, in, in contemporary spaces. So this effort to get outside of ourselves to recognize the transcendent in, particularly, uh, in particular is, is very difficult. Uh, uh, there's this notion of the buffered self. Uh, Charles Taylor's talked about the buffered self is that that seeking that orientation towards this transcendent has been uh, uh, buried beneath the layers of, of uh, acquisitiveness of, of these various illusions and desires that we've built up in modernity that have kept us from this orientation, this uh, primordial orientation towards, towards God, towards the transcendent. And so um, there is this aspect that I think she draws in on that is really refreshing um, and, and can uh, really challenge some of the prevailing assumptions hmm. that you find, broadly speaking. So with all this in mind, what, what excites you the most about your new role in starting a high school, especially within the Ampleside Method, 
uh, that you are just, this is the thing that you're like, I cannot wait for this. What would it be? Well, so for me, it's it's a kind of living out of, I mean, it, it's not about me in that sense, but it's a, it's the recognition of the fulfillment or the living out of, uh, of a particular motto that I think is really compelling, which is that, you know, the contemplative life in some sense is not enough. The, the Dominican order says, you know, it's the fruits of contemplation, right, given to others. That's really where we find the, the highest form of life, at least in their particular tradition. So, uh, for me, this has been a real uh, passion of my life, is to delve into these texts, to delve into the rich ideas. And so to take those uh, fruits of contemplation and to give them to others, not as a kind of sage on the stage, let me disseminate them to you and just hand them off, but to really get them to cultivate their own in that way. Is that This isn't the kind of fruit that you can just pick and, and, and hand off, but this is the kind of fruit that must be kind of, uh, like myself, grafted onto a living body of knowledge, a living person who is, again, identified as truth. So you're coming into all of that. Um, and to, to me, that is very vivifying to see the students uh, become really uh, intimate with these ideas, to really develop the passion that that is really, I think, central to uh, success, so to speak, in, in, in a Charlotte Mason sense, which is, you know, she talks about, it's not about what the youth knows, but how much he cares. Right, so developing that that appetite, that desire for for knowledge, for wisdom, for truth, that is really um, always exhilarating to me, and so I I feel like I'm a part of it. I mean, I get to be uh, the kind of um, you know just mediary or intermediary there, because one of the other aspects is that that I think uh, Charlotte Mason and Ambleside is is um, praiseworthy for holding is that the primary teacher is the Holy Spirit. So recognizing that I'm not, again, the sage on the stage, I'm not the one who's just handing off uh, these these tidbits of wisdom, but that we're all part of a continuity of, of tradition. Hmm. Ha have you had a chance to meet any of uh, your future students yet? Uh, just a handful. Okay. So, I mean, I've met them all kind of been in their presence right. when I came and when visited. When you came and visited, sure. And I've met uh, a couple of them because I've uh, tutored some of their siblings. Okay. Um, so, uh, particularly the Sandbergs, I've tutored Jake for the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. And so I've met, uh, his brother and his sister. Okay. I'll, I'll have his brother next year. Okay. Uh, but some of the other students I've met just, just briefly. Well, I, I just, uh, had to tell you that, and I might've, I don't know if they had gone through graduation at the time, actually, when you were here, I don't believe. Um, I went to the ceremony where they transitioned, mm -hmm. um, which was just I was so struck by it. Um, and for the listeners, the students, each student got up and it, and shared how the year had been personally transformative. One, one thing I will say is they're all very funny. They all are uh, joke. They love to joke. They love to laugh. Um, and you could tell that they're intimately connected with one another. But when, so each one started with something funny and clever and all that, as you would expect from a middle schooler. But then they talked very personally about their uh, transformation that that happened. And then all I believe each one of them wept over their teacher. And I was just struck by this. But then went on after that and said, I cannot wait for high school because if this happened to me in middle school, then, wow, what's high school going to be like? Sure. And I was sitting there thinking about not only my own experience, but just what is the average 
junior higher thinking at this moment. And I remember my own experience going, I was fearful. Dread. Dread, absolutely. Yeah. It's about survival. Yeah. Right? And here are these students who are just, I mean, to see the love for their teacher and to see these students have been transformed. They are different human beings, but that they were so excited. Um, that was one thing I, I wanted to share with you is like, you've got such a great group uh, coming your way. But what I wanted to ask you was, what would you tell a parent of, let's say maybe it's one of these uh, students' parents or another parent who may be thinking about Ambleside for high school. What would you tell them to say, hey, here's why you should consider uh, Ampleside for high school? Well, I think it's this similar way in which I would tell them about Ambleside and recommend it if they had uh, young children, is that this is, again, it's it's not competitive. We're not seeing it in terms of like winners and losers, uh, which is unfortunately how we see too much of, of life, I think. Uh, but particularly in education, it becomes about, you know, uh, who can compete, who can excel, or who can uh, supplant your peers in order to attain this one, you know, select spot in, at a particular university. I don't think that's a very uh, fulfilling model of, of the human person, of, of success, of life. Uh, I think really what you have to change, I think the metaphor that you have to change is that this is not just an achievement. This is, this is not something that you can get to in order to get an accolade so that you can go off and, you know, oh, I can go to a good college in order that I can get a good job. And th this is the way in which it's always postponing fulfillment. Mm -hmm. It's it's always postponing. It's always seeing these as intermediaries rather than the process itself as being participation in that end goal all along. Mm -hmm. So I would say, look, yes, is, is part of the goal to go off and continue your learning and is part of that to go off and lead a fulfilling life, including a career? Sure. But those are not in and of themselves satisfactory. So why should you consider Ambleside High School? You should consider Ambleside High School because it is fulfilling for the whole person rather than just for these narrow windows in which we often judge or look into uh, our lives and judge success, so to speak. So um, yeah, I think, I think it's a more fulfilling uh, it's it's a more robust anthropology, I guess, is what the way it presents it. No, I really like that. And and thinking back on that experience with the, seeing those junior hires transition, I was sitting next to their teacher, and I was like, "What does it feel like to know that those kids are going to remember you and what you did for them for the rest of their life?" And um, of course, she's just weeping herself yeah, right sure and uh but i think i think what you said is exactly right those students were benefiting in the moment and charlotte mason talks a lot about the relationships you're forming with the authors yeah um and so these students in particular well all of the students who i believe were fifth grade and higher they met the merchant of venice because they not only read it but they performed it and somebody embodied that merchant right mm -hmm. um and they have a relationship now in a way that was transformative and then the process of forming that relationship there was also transformation but i really liked how you how you put that because i think that's been what i've observed well this is i think uh, uh, again your 
attention to relationship, uh, to relation in general is, is really the key there. Because to me, and I think this is perfectly evident from the kind of historical or philosophical genealogy that one could, could lay out, is that, well, where does, or on what basis does behaviorism get this view of the human person as, as this, you know, uh, box that we can just dump all this information into? Again, it treats the human person as a, as a kind of atom, you know, this kind of uh, cell in which we can just, you know, deposit things. It's got a very uh, uh, strict uh, interior and exterior. It's isolated. It's an individual. Whereas for the Christian tradition, the notion of personhood that is the product of uh, the Council of Nicaea is based upon a notion of relationality. It doesn't, it's not just coincidence that Mason's whole pedagogy, her whole philosophy, so to speak, emphasizes the person and also emphasizes the relation. Uh, the relationship and the person are one and the same. These are events of, of relation. And so when we connect to that, when we build these rich relationships, when we build these rich relationships not only with the teacher, but with the text, with the ideas themselves, that is tapping into the very fundamental reality that we're ordered to, ordered to, and that is, you know, constitutive of the Trinity itself. I mean, not to go from something very mundane, in, in terms of like, okay, open up your book to page 35 to that. But that's really the consonance, the really the harmony that I find so, uh, you know, uh, in some ways provocative. And also it just, it, it's arresting because you see it, if you, if, you can, if you are aware of those other aspects of the tradition, you would know what to look for. You'd know what, uh, when you saw it, so to speak. And then to see it very vividly displayed, um, you know, embedded, incarnate, embodied, however you want to put it, in a brick and mortar school with students and with a particular teacher and, you know, in this time and place, it's really, it's really um, captivating. Hmm. Wow. Well, it sounds like we're going to have to do multiple podcasts uh, just to dive deeper into each of these topics that we've just barely touched on. And I would love to have you come back and talk about your experience with uh, the students at Ambleside of the Willamette Valley once you get a chance to hang out with them a little bit. Sure. And, and I think it might even be fun to bring them all into the show if that's possible. I mean, they'd have to like share some mics or something. Um, but one thing that, uh, that I wanted you to touch on before we close is just... Um, the swath of the curriculum, it's it's not just great books, but I understand you guys will be doing uh, computer programming eventually and some other things of that, which we have an interesting name for. Uh, and I, I, It was a name that I had never heard before, and I don't have my phone in front of me to, to get it. Do you recall what the... I think it's Arduino. Yeah, Arduino. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I saw that and I was like, what is Arduino? So I had to look it up and I was like, oh, okay, it's basically using machines to... Creating machines that can perform commands or something like sure. that. Yeah, so uh, that aspect of the curriculum didn't exist at Ambleside Fredericksburg, which is where I got my start in Ambleside. Okay. Um, so it's it's new to me as well. Okay. Uh, but again, this is this is kind of important to bring up, I guess, to kind of trounce some of the uh, caricatures that might exist about Ambleside, or if they encounter something, they might be like, oh, those are a bunch of Luddites. They don't like technology <laughs> right. or something yeah. like that. But really, it, it's about the, the what is, you know, a kind of, what is, beneficial what is what is the virtuous use of technology mm. um that is what what's perfective of our nature as human beings it's not to be you know kind of 
uh, unduly dependent upon on machines that we've created or to have this kind of servile relationship to them. Um, it's to, you know, use them in a way that is productive, that's actually uh, edifying. So, I, I, of course, naturally it would have a place mm -hmm. um, because so much of our society is now, you know, as we yeah, are as we right are now, using it right now is so <laughs> yeah. so uh, you know interwoven with with technology, which is a you know in many ways a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it has some alienating or isolating or negative effects, but you know this is something that they can do that's a very positive thing as I see it. So this is just one of the aspects. Of course, they have a very rich curriculum apart from the humanities. Um, lots of people want to focus on the humanities because that's something very distinctive, uh, but. I mean, this could be a whole other conversation or even with my wife who's taught math and science from the Ambleside uh, curriculum. You know, it's it's really meeting, um, I think, needs that aren't being addressed mm -hmm. in in the so-called uh, um, STEM obsession, yeah. you know. Uh, and these two things come into collision, actually, the, the focus on technology and the focus on STEM is, uh, <laughs> why are you doing... Uh, science that's a big question that remains largely unanswered but somewhat uh presumed by you know the experience of of many uh science majors for instance at uc berkeley some of my friends are even uh having experience in in that area uh what do they all want to do what do they all want to be engineers how can i use this not how can i know this or come into a relationship with it but how can i use it in oftentimes or in, in many ways just uh, for material benefit. Can you create an enzyme that's going to make this procedure a little bit faster? Because you can make a lot of money off of that. Rather than like, wow, I'm really inspired. I, I have this sense of awe or wonder at nature and I want to come to know and have a relationship with it. That's, that's really kind of left out of the, the equation there, so to speak. So this integration or this this uh, uh, collision between the use of technology as a kind of utilitarian uh, uh, mechanism and then, of course, the, the sciences, uh, it, it's, it's not been very productive. So I think the broader thing that Ambleside does well, again, is not just focusing on the humanities as some classic uh, schools, uh, classical schools will do, is, oh, well, we focus on the great books. But we really engage in in the math and science as well. We're not mm -hmm. we're not soft on that part. Yeah, and I think, like you said, that's something that will surprise people, especially about high school, mm -hmm. um, because up until this point, we're a technology free school, with the exception now of high school, where high schoolers will get laptops to do particularly um, computer programming and things of that nature. The other thing that I uh, find that people um, maybe don't appreciate as much, you mentioned the sciences and math. Mathematical literacy is from the very beginning. Uh, there is a lot of work on math. And what's so interesting about it is I was just talking um, in my work life. I do a lot of work in technology. And I was uh, meeting with one of our uh, platform architects. And we were, we were doing some hiring, and he says, uh, I like to hire mathematicians and uh, for programmers. He goes, because they already understand logic, proofs, equations, formula. He goes, they have everything that we need. And I thought, wow. I look at the Ambleside curriculum and how it's rounding out, and I'm like, these students are going to be able to go and do whatever they want. But to your point, they have a different kind of relationship mm -hmm 
with the things they're pursuing. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it does. I think that it doesn't just treat things as objects for use, which really distorts their meaning, their significance, is that the flowers aren't just there for me to use for my own purposes. They're there to be enjoyed, and they also manifest something of the divine glory. There's a reason why there's this great plenitude or diversity of things that are that exist in creation, and they're not all just for me. There's a lot of things that aren't really useful for human beings in terms of what they can eat or drink or, you know, use for shelter. So why do they exist? You know, that's a broad question. There's lots of things that, that could fall under that category, because the divine plenitude is so, it's so full, that divine perfection is so, uh, so transcendent and infinite, that it's this diversity of things that better reflects the divine glory. And so, when you take this uh, approach where you can appreciate it from awe, from wonder, again, from a, an appreciation of the sublime, from the beautiful, uh, it, it's a completely different approach. You have a relationship with it, which is not uh, exploitative, which is not um, uh, base. It's, it's edifying. It's virtuous. Wow. Well, Austin, thank you so much for this time. It's been good to spend this kind of quality time getting to know you. I hope our listeners uh, get a sense of the kind of quality person that you are. And we're just so thrilled that you're here. And I want to have you back and talk more about some of these subjects and issues we've raised. Oh, so, sure. Yeah. Anytime. <laughs> All right. Thanks. <laughs>